Wartburg uh, played a one-point game with Franklin and almost didn't advance past Franklin. And then Beatrine, like a rented red-headed stepchild mule. Whoa. Uh, a rented red-headed step mule? Yeah. Then probably either. It's probably a good transitive property there. These red-headed step mules, what do you think they rent for? And do you have to rent them for like the whole week or just the three hours? I don't even know how to answer that. Football fans, it's now time for the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Here are your hosts, Pat Coleman and Keith McMillan. You've tuned into the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast. Two guys and occasional guests talking about the news in NCAA Division Three football. We're the largest division with the smallest schools, and I'm Pat Coleman, the guy who runs D3Football.com. My co-host, Keith McMillan, has been here since 1999. Keith, if we were to hire you to this position, what expectation would you hope to set? I'd hope to be more exciting than Saturday's second round. Oh, well, we know there are not a lot of competitive games in the first round, but often, overall, the second round isn't particularly competitive either. However, this past weekend's was pretty uncompetitive across the board. While this wasn't the worst second round in terms of average margin of victory or margin of defeat or margin of blowout, this was the first time since the playoff bracket went to 32 teams that we didn't have a single competitive game. And by that, I mean we didn't have a single game decided by single digits. That's never happened in the 32-team playoff. Last time it was even close to this bad was 10 years ago. Oh, if only there was some way of reminding myself. The biggest surprise of the weekend is really what we're talking about, just score margins. Uh, blowout after blowout after blowout. Maybe none of them more unexpected than Central manhandling St. John's 37-7 to on Saturday. Yeah, that was really the major surprise. There weren't any big surprises in terms of, of winners. All right, so since we've established there's nothing to write home about, this was the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast number 180. All right, seriously, though, Keith, save us here. Help us out. What's your take on where we're at with this playoff so far? I'm in a weird place with this tournament. The first round had its share of surprises. The second, utter domination, almost 25 points per game average margin of victory. The brackets were so unbalanced and mismatched initially, however, that I'm not sure we've learned all that much about many of the team, the eight teams still alive. Uh, I don't really know how I feel in general about what's happened to date. On one hand, Linfield and North Central have had to play two top 10 teams each and got knocked out this past Saturday. On the other, Wartburg and Delaware Valley advanced to the quarterfinals without having to play anyone ranked higher than 25th, or in the Aggies' case, anyone ranked at all. I wouldn't say we're any closer to knowing whether those teams can truly complete, compete for a trip to Salem. On the flip side, nobody that lost this past Saturday made a particularly great case for why it belonged in the tournament another round. It's not like we saw Linfield get knocked out by a last-second field goal and thought to ourselves, man, they could have made it to the Stag Bowl if only they hadn't had to play Mary Harden Baylor so soon. So, like I said, weird place. Brockport and Frostburg State have stood out. UW Oshkosh and Mount Union remain on a collision course. And there's an epic clash between stylistically similar St. Thomas and Mary Harden Baylor looming this week. But ultimately, despite some trickeration in round one, we're exactly where we'd anticipated we'd be the day the brackets were released. Trickeration. Yeah, chalk has reigned relatively supreme, with uh, one notable exception, which we'll definitely talk about. The highest ranked team possible, at least in our poll, came out of each pod. I mean, the bracket required us to eliminate the teams that are ranked five, six, eight, and nine before getting to the final eight. But other than Wittenberg, the top ranked team in each foursome is still around. It's 15th-ranked Frostburg State, which has made the most of the waves in this bracket, knocking off number 12 Wittenberg last week and number 14 WJ this week. And the Bobcats' road gets even harder this week. 
Yeah, the good news for this tournament is, except for Oshkosh and Brockport, the level of competition, the level of opponent takes a huge jump for everyone this weekend. You go from playing Franklin and Trine to UW Oshkosh or from Wittenberg and W&J to Mount Union or Western New England and Husson to Brockport or Eureka and Barry to Mary Harden Baylor. You get my point. The quarterfinals will be quite the challenge. Now, which teams look stag bowl ready after two rounds? Certainly, Oshkosh and Mary Harden Baylor impressed on Saturday, rendering top 10 opponents non-competitive. Brockport remains a dark horse, as we've said for weeks on this podcast. So in a sense, maybe we judge the quality of contender by the quality of opponent they've beaten so far, with Mount Union perhaps being an exception. Wartburg obviously looked outstanding on Saturday, but it's not easy to project how they'll fare against such an increased level of competition this week against Oshkosh based on what they did against Trine. We're going to take a look at the carnage game by game, but before that, a quick word from our sponsor. This edition of the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast is sponsored by FanRays. And what FanRays offers is hassle-free, risk-free handling of your online apparel store. No longer do you have to sift through boxes of gear to fill someone's order. FanRays handles it all, including shipping to your customer. And your program gets its share of the profits. Now your store can be open year-round, not just for two weeks. And you don't have a bunch of printouts or emails or handwritten slips of paper sitting around your desk waiting until you have enough for a bulk order. They'll handle it all for you at thefanrays.com. Monday, November 27th is the last day of our Cyber Week sale on the D3 Football and D3 Talent Stores on FanRays. Use the code HOLIDAY10 at checkout to get 10% off your order of D3 Football or D3 Talent merchandise. You can find these stores at d3fb.thefanrays.com and d3talent.thefanrays.com. Especially for the Division Three football player, fan, alumnus in your life who knows that talent runs deep in Division Three. Hurry, because time is ticking down on this deal. And Keith, it's time for game balls. I'm giving mine to Brockport quarterback Joe Germanario. And as I was looking through Saturday's games, this was also a performance that caused me to do a double take, even though we don't have double takes in this postseason podcast. I would not have pictured anyone going 30 for 38 against the Wesley defense, but that's what the sophomore did in his program's first big playoff test. He threw for 292 yards and three touchdowns with no interceptions and ran for positive yardage, including a 21-yard run on a second and 16 to help set up Brockport's third touchdown. Shades of the early part of Shane McSweeney's career for Wesley, where he showed some escapability, took care of the football. Not a lot of deep shots, but none were needed on Saturday in a 49-21 win versus Wesley. 28, I believe. Yeah, even better. That's good. Accuracy's good, too. If I had been fast enough, I would have corrected it on the sheet we've done that before haven't we okay so i'm just gonna keep on talking i'm probably not even editing this out go for it all right uh, well for my game ball i considered a bunch of defenses mary harden baylor's shutout and goal line stand brockport's back-to-back defensive touchdowns Wartburg's general dominance but ultimately i chose uw oshkosh quarterback brett casper the six touchdowns the no interceptions the general efficiency and the experience, especially playoff experience, make him the most dangerous player left in the tournament, perhaps. Yeah, Casper was really good on Saturday. Five touchdowns in the first half. And uh, although that game was happening at the same time at the game I was at, it seemed like every time I looked in, Casper was throwing deep to Sam Metkowski or hitting Dom Totorello in that uh, 42-21 win versus North Central. One of the things I look at to quickly analyze a box score is to see how many players had big plays, and six receivers and ball carriers had plays of 20 yards or more, including Tartarello, who had both a 47-yard run and a 25-yard catch. Yeah, the, the numbers on that one were uh, 12.9 yards per pass, 9.8 yards per play for the Oshkosh offense, so we've spoken in the past about this being a, 
an offensive-led team rather than a defensive-guided team as uh, the Stag Bowl unit for Oshkosh was last season. These Titans, um, pretty much all the same playmakers back, and, uh, and, and they made a ton of plays on Saturday against North Central. It really kind of got out of hand quickly. North Central drove down, scored early. Uh, Oshkosh comes back with a very methodical drive. Casper uh, runs for a, a pick again, hits guys over the middle, in the flat. Uh, just very efficient passing. And then it looked like at that point it was going to be a back-and-forth game, except it was all fourth. All Oshkosh, pretty much the, the second quarter, 28-point second quarter. And uh, they added a score in the third and ran away with it. North Central added a couple of touchdowns. Uh, late to to close the gap, but it was a 42-7 game at that point. Really a total domination by a team that now you'd have to say uh, looks on track to get back to the Stag Bowl, although Mount Union or Frostburg State and, of course, Wartburg uh, this week uh, stand in their way. How do you know when it's all fourth and not all back? I don't know. Made that one up on the fly. At the Wartburg Trine game, this is a game that was basically over early. Uh, Trine fumbled three times in the span of about seven plays of the first quarter, uh, and one snap into the second quarter, it was 28-0 Wartburg. Basically, although Trine had a couple of guys with some quickness on offense, the Thunder just didn't have the speed sideline to sideline to compete. They couldn't get the receivers open. Evan Wise definitely did not look like a Gallardi Trophy quarterback at all, and all of this added up to a 49-7 win for Wartburg. Yeah, Wise's numbers, 4 of 11 passing, 95 yards, uh, two interceptions, no touchdowns. Those 95 yards include a 53-yard play. Uh, 20 carries for 80, 84 yards, uh, 4.2 per carry. But uh, the the other back, Lamar Carswell, 23 carries for 34 yards. A really tough day for uh, for the trying offense. And then on the flip side, Warburg basically did whatever it wanted offensively. Matt Sasha. 15 of 18 passing, 236 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions. Connor Schrader, only 12 carries to get to 147 yards, 12.3 yards per carry. Mason Carter, 7.7 yards per carry. Dylan Binion, 8 yards, you get the point. Uh, Warburg, really surprising domination. If you go back and look at our quick hits picks from Friday, and we'll get to that later in the podcast, we were split down the middle on this game, Logan Hansen's um, Odds on this game, I don't odds is not the right word. Uh, the, the, his model uh, projected this at 51% win percentage for Wartburg. And you know if he could skew the numbers at all for anyone, it would be for Wartburg. So, you know, those were <laughs> those were legitimate numbers. Um, we thought this would be, a, especially Wartburg coming off a game which it had to break up a, a, a two-point conversion attempt in overtime to, to even move on to this round. Yeah. We certainly didn't see 42-point domination coming and uh it turned out this was maybe the easiest game of of round two to, to tune out of and, and move on to the other games that's easier said than done obviously i was in the press box yeah um, if you're there you, you pretty much can't tune out that's another reason it was easy to tune out <laughs> the uh i think the reason why we thought it would be a nip and tuck game was i think it's real easy to compare trine to Franklin. They're both champions of a, of a conference that's fairly lower down in the pecking order in Division Three. Um, but, you know, the difference, I guess, is that Franklin has Chase Burton. Franklin has a team with some playoff experience, and maybe those are the things that might have acquitted them a little bit better. Yeah, maybe. 
Moving on, Mount Union did the Mount Union thing in its Mount Union second round win versus Case Western Reserve. 45-16 was the score. Purple Raiders picked off Rob Kuda three times, returning one of them for a touchdown. Jacob Burke, the running back, looked decidedly less than 100%, even by playing against Mount Union standards. And Aaron Aguilar's only carry of the day was a run for minus two yards, where he didn't even get close to turning the corner against the Purple Raiders' defensive front. Yeah, when you suggest this is a typical Mount Union playoff game, and especially Mount Union against a second-round type opponent rather than Mount Union in the semifinals or Stag Bowl when they sometimes meet a team that, that can hang with them, they took apart Case Western Reserve the way they take apart teams that aren't quite as good as them. Starts up front with the offensive line. Uh, quarterback has tons of time to throw. Running backs have room to run. Um they make things easy offensively, and when the quarterback has has that kind of time, as D'Angelo Fulford did on Saturday, uh, tend to make good decisions, no turnovers, few sacks. That's very much in the Mount Union um, MO that we've seen going back to the 90s. And then yeah, you add to it, especially since Vince Karras has, has been in charge of the defense and then in charge of uh, the team as a whole. Uh, he's he's a defensive mind, so he he wants Mount Union to basically be dominant defensively. They picked off Rob Cuda three times on Saturday. Took one of those back for a touchdown. Uh, Case Western Reserve not really able to run the ball. Certainly not the worst rushing performance we saw on Saturday from uh, from a losing team. But uh, 31 carries, 106 yards, 3.4 per carry. Basically uh, weren't weren't good on third down either. 413 on third down. They went for it three times on fourth down. They went for it six times on fourth down, made three uh, as well. Really, the only guy who had any success was uh, was Justin Fan, the wide receiver. 12 catches, 169 yards. He's been a standout player for them uh, on offense and special teams uh, going back a, a couple seasons now. And uh, he was really the only guy who can... can um, say, hey, when I got my chance to play against Mountain Union, you know, I, I've had a good game. But it, it's no fun when uh, when your team gets beaten and, and you're playing in the second half of, of a game and, you know, you're, got, you're down, you know, whatever, whatever it was. It was one point, um, 21-6 at half. It was 24-9 in the third quarter, you know, and, and then Mountain Union really not even uh, necessarily going out of its way to, to run up the score, but just adding a couple touchdowns in the fourth quarter and Mountain Union pulls away. They always do. The one thing I, I, I wanted to say quickly about the offensive line too, for Mountain Union is that um, they really had a lot of success running the ball. And you notice it when you get a chance to, to watch the game because right the way they, their offense is designed now, they, they pull a lot of linemen. And I noticed, I think at least three times on the broadcast. And again, I wasn't watching straight through start to finish three times, three times a lineman pulls, and there was nobody from the block in the hole because everyone was either already blocked or had <laughs> the defenders had run themselves out of the play yeah. at that point. And the guy was just looking around for somebody to hit, and you know, may ha- has to go up to the second level and get somebody, or or just uh, you know, kind of throw his shoulder into a double team just because. But uh, it'll get a little tougher for Mountain Union, um, starting with with Frostburg's uh, defensive front. They've been pretty good defensively, but uh, but this was pretty much a textbook Mountain Union second round win. We had a game for a while between Frostburg State and W&J. Uh, it was 17-10 Frostburg at the half, 24-17 midway through the third, and then it became 34-17, 41-17 on the way to a 46-23 win for the Bobcats. And uh, Frostburg's run continues, thanks in part to countless numbers of turnovers. 
Here's Delane Fitzgerald on that. Proud of these young men. I don't know what else you say about a school that's got one one playoff appearance in its history. The last time Frostburg made the playoffs, these young men weren't alive, and their stick-to-itiveness and, and our ability to just rebound and rebound and rebound. Washington Jefferson's a good football team, probably as well a coached football team as we've seen this year. Mike Sirianni, great football coach, but I'm not telling anybody at Washington Jefferson or in Washington, Pennsylvania, anything new or in the PSAC. He, he can coach. Very, very well coached team. They made plays today, and we just continue to come back and rebound and make plays. Um, they, they make a play, we'd make two or three plays. They'd make a play, we'd make two or three plays. I don't know where to go with any of this other than to say um, couldn't be proud of the young men that we coach. Coach, uh, you, you had three turnovers. They had three turnovers, but you got 17 points out of it. They got three. Did you think maybe that was the, the key to this game? Yeah, now, now that you tell me that it is. For, <laughs> I'd... If you were to, if you'd asked me the question, how many turnovers they had versus us, I'd have said, well, our quarterback screwed up and threw two interceptions that he shouldn't have. But I thought they had thrown five or six interceptions. Just seemed like they threw a lot, or maybe Vinny returning them for all those yards made it seem like a lot more than it was. I didn't know it was three to three. Um, yeah, that points off turnovers would have had to have been would have had to have been the difference, sir. Was there any specific turnover that you think kind of swayed the game? Was it swept the momentum to your side? Yeah, they're they're going in. They're going in to score in the third quarter, and our defensive coordinator makes a great coverage call. What was the coverage call, Vinny? He calls Knights for the first time all game, and they weren't expecting Vinny to be in the flat, and the quarterback lobbed the ball out in the flat. When they're in scoring territory, and Vinny intercepts it and goes down the sideline for 40 or 50 yards with it, that turnover in the third quarter, because if they score right there, they're going to tie the football game up. So the real impressive thing about Frostburg State's now second win in the postseason, not so much the margin of victory or the turnovers, but I think it, the the correlation between the two wins, if you look at time of possession and uh, and rushing advantage against uh, Washington Jefferson, Frostburg held the ball for 37-36 on Saturday, outrushed W&J 248-60. Now, some of that stylistic W&J doesn't run the ball uh, nearly as much as uh, some teams they might face in the postseason. But if you jump back to the Frostburg State-Wittenberg score, and again, that was a, a huge upset we didn't necessarily see coming, 35-7. Uh, in round one, the uh, time of possession, 40 minutes, 59 seconds, so almost 41 minutes for, uh, for Frostburg. And, uh, and the rushing advantage was even more stark uh, on, uh, in round one, 385 to 60. So they allowed 60 rushing yards in, in both games, making teams pretty much one-dimensional. And that's kind of a, a pattern we'll see as we get to this other side of the bracket and some of the other defensive performances. Uh, we'll talk about that. But I, I think for Frostburg, you know, they've they've come up with what their identity is and they've been able to establish it now in the first two playoff games. And it'll be interesting as you get into the first and second quarter of next week's game, if they're not able to run the ball, if they're not able to have a time of possession advantage against Mount Union at Mount Union, you know, what what they go to. Let's take a look at that other side of the bracket and talk about the showdown that also ended up not being a game. Linfield at Mary Harden Baylor. Defense was a story for the defending champions and the crew behind freshman quarterback Carl Robertson III put up enough offense to advance. The 24-0 win makes it 48-3 against Linfield this season, which went 9-2 with both losses to UMHB for the second year in a row. 
The Wildcats, also using a freshman quarterback, ran for 38 yards on 32 attempts and converted one of 14 third-down tries, but the key sequence came with Linfield trying to get back into the game in the third quarter. After a 27-yard completion on fourth and four was followed a few plays later by a first and goal from the three, Linfield used his top back, Chidubum Noli, on three straight plays and couldn't get in. Haston Adams was in on two of the stops. He's the star along the Mary Harden-Baylor defensive line. Then on fourth down from the four, Linfield tried Aiden Wilder. Jalen Martin and Jefferson Fritz made the stop for Mary Harden-Baylor. Then Robinson completes four long passes on the following drive, sandwiched around a couple Markeith Miller runs, and it was all she wrote. Yeah, I think our colleague Greg, Th- Greg Thomas put it best, and I'm quoting from our Slack channel on Saturday. Linfield broke out the Wildcat on fourth and goal and couldn't score. That might have been our last shot for a good game today. After the game, we heard a little bit about the UMHB offense. Here's TJ Josie talking about Carl Robinson. TJ, how do you help Carl when he's maybe struggling just a little bit and look like he's you know maybe pressing a little bit and you played every position just about you know how do you, how do you how do you help him out? Do you get in his ear a little bit? Yeah, I mean uh, we room together, so I talked to him the night before and I just tell him that uh, to playing playing that big quarterback position is it's just about being a good dealer. Uh, you just got to go out there whenever the coach calls a play, you got to read read it out and just deliver the ball. Give us give the guys that. Uh, that they can make the plays, just make the plays. And uh, whenever he's down, I, I stay in his ear. I let him know that, hey, that, that play's over with. It's time to move on and keep going. How close do you think he is to being where he needs to be, take you guys where you want to go? Uh, I think he's re- I think he's really close. He's uh, he's still young, but he's learning every week. He's getting a lot better. His, uh, his practice is so The offense seemed to be, at least early on, played a little more close to the vest. For y'all a little bit, was that situation, or was that the game plan going in? Let's... Well, it was the game plan going in. Now, you take uh, Linfield is really good on defense, and our guys really, you know, and again, they sometimes go from five in the box to six. It's the same deal is that we try to get, uh, we try to take what they give us, and uh, and I thought we did a nice job of that. And you think uh, Carl running today was really exciting for me to see that uh, and to open that up. And I, I just think that uh, in the second half, uh, we, we were struggling around. Just I, I felt like that we came out a little flat in the third quarter. Um, but, I mean, they had four yards of offense, or so, uh, 42 yards of offense. So uh, they, they did a nice job of regrouping and moving the ball. So. And those were design draws that he was running on, weren't they? Mm-hmm. TJ, you mentioned about, you know, you and Carl being roommates. I mean, just going into a little detail, that's, you know, an obvious thing, helping the relationship off the field. But, you know, when have, when have you seen it kind of, you know, reach its peak maybe earlier this season or, or how that come to be? Uh, I think after that, that first game he struggled and he, uh, he got benched. I, I told him, just can't, you can't get your head down. Like uh, I said, if you, get, if you get your head down and you start pouting, then coach is going to see that he doesn't, he doesn't like bad uh, body language. And just after that, he came out the next week just fine. <coughs> clicking on all cylinders and I think right then. You know, Coach has maintained offensively that you guys haven't hit your peak yet. Mm-hmm. What do you think you have to do in order to find that level? Uh, just have confidence in, in everybody that's out there. We have to believe in and play for each other, That's out, everybody that's out there. And it's, we're going to be really good. And as we move on to the other game in this quadrant, St. Thomas against Barry, uh, the Tommies also played some killer defense, making the Vikings one-dimensional and crushing their spirits on third down, three for 14. Uh, they had 14 rushes for 15 yards, Barry did, and uh, 0.9 yards per carry. But the Vikings hung in there and represented themselves and the SAA well. Although the Tommies went up by three scores in the fourth, by comparison with Saturday's other games, this one was practically tight. 
The Tommies ran 97 plays, converting a whopping 10 of 23rd downs and 3 of 7 fourths to keep drives going. They had 41 minutes, 7 seconds time of possession. They outrushed Barry 198 to 14 and did what you'd expect of one of the most physical teams in the country to do to a squad that was game, but clearly not the Tommies equal. Barry defensive tackle Mamadou Sahoro had half a sack, a couple quarterback hurries, and a breakup, but the Tommies were on the field so much, three Barry defenders had 10 or more tackles, led by Evan Breakspear's 16. Yeah, nearly 500 yards of total offense ought really to result in more than 29 points. Ought really to result. I guess I was writing a Jane Austen novel at that point. <laughs> Dang, ought really? My God. And certainly turning the ball over three times, twice deep into Barry territory had an impact on that. But uh, definitely something for St. Thomas to work on this week since the defense they'll face only gets significantly more tough in the quarterfinals. One of those hurries for Sumo Oro probably led directly to that interception in the red zone. Good game for Barry, though. Good experience for the program and uh, something to be concerned about if you're picking the Tommies to keep advancing. In the bottom right-hand bracket, Doylestown, Pennsylvania, John Smith got about to his average rushing day, but mostly after the game was decided as Delaware Valley defeated Husson 37-15. Smith had two yards at halftime uh, and had a nice drive to open the second half, going for 58 yards and a touchdown and six carries to cut the lead to 19-7. But then Delaware Valley returned the next kickoff out to the Husson 22. They were in the end zone five plays later. Then the very next snap was a pick six, and it was 31-7 Delval and basically over. Here's Gordon Mann talking with Deshaun Darden and Duke Greco after the game. You guys really feast on that when they go, when they run that particular coverage and it's one-on-one. It's, it's Aaron, it's Dan, it's Marquise. It's, it's pretty, it's pretty obvious where, you know, what's coming once they, when you see that as a quarterback, you know, take me to your thought process. Um, when I see it, I just, I feel good. I feel confident in my guys to make plays. Um, I know that they're real anxious when they see a press corner or a press safety or something. So they just go and they take pride in making plays. Were you surprised that they played that, given how you moved the ball last week? Uh, not yes and no. They uh, it's what they do. So if they didn't play us that way, it would have been out of you know, out of the ordinary. Right. Um, in the second half, they did adjust and like when they picked us off, they went to a zone coverage, which we weren't expecting. So they. Uh, it's kind of what we thought coming in. We just kind of thought they might play us a little differently considering we, we throw the ball down the field quite a bit. So. so unlike the other teams who struggled to run the ball, it was really Huston's passing game that struggled against Delaware Valley. They, they just weren't able to move the ball through the air. Corey Brandon, 10 to 20 passing, 97 yards. And again, just like we talked about with Trine, one of those, uh, half of those yards were on a big play, a 48-yard pass. Four interceptions, no touchdowns. And Husson also uh, didn't help itself with 12 penalties for 101 yards against Delaware Valley, uh, allowed three sacks, and you add those four interceptions in there, and it's pretty much a recipe for a dominant day for for the Aggies. Now, even that being said, Husson, last New England team standing, um, you know, the upset in the first round may be one of the lasting memories uh, of this postseason, given uh, the, the way things went in round two. Um, and honestly, the Husson may have gotten itself ranked. They may sneak up into that 25 spot with, uh, with, with playing a couple of playoff games, but just no match at all for Delaware Valley. And this leaves us with the last game in the bracket. Not the least, and, and certainly not the least interesting, but in the end, too, it was also a blowout with Brockport defeating Wesley 49-28. to 28. It's 28. I got it right this time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. 
Now I'm just doubting myself. Uh, back and forth through the first half with the game tied at 21. Brockport then busted the game open with three third-quarter touchdowns, two of them scored by the defense, and very quickly it was all she wrote. Uh, I mentioned Joe Germanario's day above. Uh, for Wesley, Kalik Burroughs looked like a guy making his first playoff start. Never mind that it was his second, but uh, he threw three interceptions, completed just 16 to 35 passes. Here's Golden Eagles coach Jason Mangoni and how his team has approached the playoffs and also on the tight game at halftime. Yeah, and I said it last week, and I don't mean to discredit anything from our staff, but we really don't say much about it, right? So in our, in our sport, inevitably, 9-1, does not guarantee you the playoffs, right? So in essence, this is kind of our 12th playoff game in a row. And that's how we look at it, right? So to beat Hobart week one was monstrous, right? And just as huge as winning this game, here we are in, in week 12. So uh, the kids know we're gonna come out, we're gonna prep the same way on Monday and Tuesday and so forth. And then our goal is to go out and play as efficient as we can. We don't ever talk about outcomes. We don't talk about how many points we want to score or give up. It's about just playing to our level of expectation and, and hoping that the outcome is in our favor. We just played an outstanding football team, a well-coached football team and uh, who has a lot of athletes. And, uh, you know, we had to rise up and step up to the challenge. And I, and I think our guys did, obviously. Um, all three phases played outstanding. But it's a uh, it's a huge win for our program right now. Coach, 21-21 going to the half, and they, were, they had a little momentum. What was the message at halftime? Let's keep playing. You know, it's the same way we, we went into the halftime at Cortland. And even though we were down against Cortland, the message was the same. You know, we, we felt like, obviously, the fumble in our own end uh, attributed to 700 points. We gave up a big pass on third, I believe, 13. Um, so if you take away a few plays, potentially, you have a chance to be leading at the half. So there was no panic by no means. And obviously felt comfortable about getting the ball out of the half. And obviously we went down and, and uh, executed our offense and, and scored. Have never panicked ever, no matter what the score is. And it, it, it stayed true today. I actually think uh, having to face Wesley was a much better test for Brockport than, uh, than Plymouth State was. Brockport's now advancing to play Delaware Valley, and, and if they win that one, there'll be a much tougher test waiting on the other end, either St. Thomas or Mary Harden-Baylor. Uh, Brockport looks like a legitimate semifinalist on both sides of the ball, but the the getting a, a test from a Wesley in the second round, I think, is a lot better than, than having to play a game where they could easily skate by. So that point where they're tied at, at halftime, think is is really good for was really good for Brockport and I, I think it also showed just how quickly uh the, that game got away it was a uh 21 all game Brockport puts together a 10 play 71 yard drive to start the third quarter and then right after that uh Terry McDonald 15 yard interception return Austin Dean 15 yard fumble recovery so 10:09, they go up 28-21 by 8:41 of the third. They're up 42-21 because those two defensive linemen uh, turn turnovers into touchdowns, and, and suddenly a tie game is a three-touchdown game for Brockport. So very explosive. They could cause trouble for you on on uh, the defensive side of the ball as well. One of the uh, great defenses uh, throughout the uh, throughout the season. This is something actually I learned on Saturday. I didn't realize how good they'd been defensively because of paying so much attention to the quarterback and and uh, the the big numbers they put up offensively. But 
seems like a well-rounded team right now, and, and it was great for them to have to play a team Wesley's caliber in the second round rather than skate through, I think, uh, to, to the quarters. Let's take a look at the matchups here in the quarterfinals, and uh, starting with uh, number 17, Wartburg at number 3, UW Oshkosh. So Wartburg is back in the semifinals for the second time in four years. And, and Keith, if you thought you and I remember that last trip well, you know, the loss at Whitewater, well, no doubt Rick Willis remembers it even better. You know, I think the biggest thing that, that we have to learn from that game is that, that you have to be able to finish. You know, we had ourselves in a situation to, to do something really special up there, and we didn't quite get it done because we couldn't finish. Uh, you can't make key mistakes in, in, in uh, you know, in the fourth quarter. And, you know, we kicked a bunch of field goals in the, in the first half, and we got it, we're moving the ball well. And so you've got to take advantage of your opportunities. You've got to limit mistakes. You've got to be able to finish. And, uh, you know, it's obviously a different team. This is a different team. Every, you know, it's not the same deal. But uh, the same things that win football games throughout the year are, are going to win football games next week. You know, and, and that's, uh, you know, we got to be able to run the ball. We got to stop the run. We got to make plays at critical times. We got to control turnovers, win the turnover margin. You know, those things are the same every week. And those will be things that are important next week. Uh, you rattled off the details of that quarterfinal game from a few years ago pretty readily for us. Uh, do you think about that game often? Yeah, that's a game that uh, doesn't leave you easily. Um, I think everybody that was involved in that, um, you know, remembers uh, remembers that day. And, um, you know, we'll look forward to having another swing at it. Keith, I'm thinking Wartburg is going to have trouble just keeping up with all the weapons Oshkosh can throw at them. I think the final result will probably end up pretty similar to the Oshkosh North Central game from this week. That Whitewater game in the postseason a couple years ago, I think very different from this game because Wartburg was highly ranked at that time. Uh, top 10 team really, I don't want to say was expected to go toe-to-toe with Whitewater because I don't think anybody except Mountain Union was expected to go toe-to-toe with Whitewater back at, at that time. But um, led big in the fourth quarter of that game and, and let it get away. And uh, th- this game, much different. I don't think, uh, I, or I don't know what we've seen to date that would suggest Wartburg is as talented as uh, UW Oshkosh. So they're really going to have to play a, uh, a, a efficient, tight game, no turnovers, very few mistakes. And the, the problem is, Pat, as you mentioned, Oshkosh, just throw so much at you, not just with their their offensive skill players and experienced quarterback, very good offensive line, but the scheme, a lot of a lot of motion, misdirection, a lot of movement, and it's just tough to prepare for on short notice. Now, Rick Willis has been doing this a long time. I'm sure he has. Um, may not be the first time he's ever seen Oshkosh. He may have uh, a, a lot more uh, tape or access to insight on on, on Oshkosh offense than. Uh, one would assume, but it's just a it's just a tough one to get ready for on, on short notice. Well, and you said, and I, I I appreciated your wording of it, and I, I may not get it precisely correct, but you said something along the lines of, "I don't know what we've seen from Warburg that would suggest," and that's the question with a a lot of teams, right? Uh, well, not a lot of teams, but earlier in the bracket, it was a question with some teams because teams that aren't tested. Uh, throughout the course of the regular season, maybe not even tested here through the first couple rounds of the playoffs. Wartburg may well be able to compete and go toe-to-toe with Oshkosh, but there just isn't any, uh, there's no data out there, there's no evidence to suggest based on something that's happened on the field that that would happen. 
And that's the big difference when you, you hear the way folks talk about um, it may be too easy to say Mary Harden Baylor because they played Linfield, but uh, or and they played Harden Simmons middle of the season. But Delaware Valley has the Wesley game. Uh, Brockport has games up and down the the Empire Eight schedule because that's regarded as one of the toughest conferences in the country. Frostburg also had to play Wesley. Um, you know those those tests give us a, a bunch of information, or you know we're we're certainly not sitting here saying Wartburg can't do it. Or they're in, you know, there's no, there's zero chance. But you look at what's been done to date. Warburg's best wins are, are Monmouth, a team that went out in the first round. They needed a, a to stop a two point conversion to, to get out of the first round against Franklin, and then looked very good on Saturday. If you were just judging by that game, you'd say Warburg, you know, might be the favorite. But it, it's really the relative strength of of who they've played. And when you look at Oshkosh, their non-conference game is John Carroll, team from the OAC. And then you go through the toughest, the toughest conference in the country in the WIAC. And it was a very good season for the WIAC too, because lacrosse was competitive, uh, Platteville, Whitewater. So long story short, um, it's, it's going to be a big test. And this would probably be the game that we expect to be least competitive. Now, who knows what happens on Saturday, but you, you figure Oshkosh, fair, fairly big expectation that they'll win. Mountain Union, you know, you, you figure they win. Um, Frostburg may be able to give them a challenge, and that'll be interesting um, to see how those two match up uh, on the lines. I know we're going to talk about that game in a second. And the games that really, I think, are the, are the, the games you, that could go either way are the, the other two games, the St. Thomas and Mary Harden-Baylor and Brockport-Delval. Yeah, so let's look at that Frostburg Mountain Union game. Uh, magical ride continues for the Bobcats, and I would I would suspect that uh, with Niall Scott and everybody else up front, they should be able to bring some pressure with their front four, and that has long been considered a key to the game when you're playing the Purple Raiders. My question will be whether Frostburg can put up enough offense. Uh, Mountain Union definitely a step up the ladder, as you said. And even though I have had this question each of the past two weeks also about Frostburg State, um, there's a difference between the... Wittenberg and W&J defenses and the Mountain Union defense? Well, the line, the line play for both sides will be in focus because the way they've they've gotten to this point, to the quarterfinals, is by controlling the ball, by by dominating the, the line of scrimmage. Frostburg a little bit more with the run game and then also dominating defensively, not letting either uh, Washington Jefferson or Wittenberg run the ball. The Mountain Union has had a lot of success running the ball in the postseason with uh, Joanza Evans-Morris and, and Josh Petroselli. So they'll, um, they'll, uh, it'll be a, basically a, a much a much tougher challenge up front for Frostburg. But I think likewise for Mountain Union that they've been able to against Case Western Reserve and, and against uh, Washington Lee, which they had to do in the rain, they were able to control the line of scrimmage uh, offensively as well as defensively. So I think that's where the, the game is. And if you get, I think you see this one, and it may go a couple quarters, and it may be a seven-point game, uh, you know, just before halftime or whatever. Now, we've we've had times where we see an East Region team or a South Region team go play Mountain Union, and we think it's going to be a great game. It ends up being 66-0 or 72-1-14, whatever that Widener score was. We've Those seen not, games like that. Again, not random scores you're throwing out there. Right, I don't think this will get in in that case. I really think Frostburg State, just the way they're built and the way Mount Union is currently built, this could be a good game for a while. 
but we've seen crazier things happen. 66 nothing, 72 14, 70 to 30. 30, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sat through a lot of those personally. Um, not expected to be a game like that. Uh, St. Thomas at Mary Harden Baylor. The rankings suggest this will be the game of the day. Fourth ranked Tommies at the top ranked crew. Here is uh, St. Thomas coach Glenn Caruso's quick take. You know, I've seen him over the years. I've seen him play the, the best. I've seen him play the Wesleys. I've seen him play the Mount Unions. I've seen him play the Oshkoshes. And they're just a, a, a very cohesive team. It's, uh, you know, there's eight football teams playing left in the country right now. There's no dogs in the field, right? And, and this, is the, this is the pinnacle uh, coming off of last year. So it's going to be a tough test. Keith, I think Glenn Caruso really does truly enjoy getting to play different programs and going to see different programs in Division Three. This will be a test, though. I think this is a season with three elite teams in Division Three football, and even if St. Thomas is the fourth, it could be a distant fourth. Well, the thing I love about this game is that it's not just a, a matchup of one versus four in the poll, but stylistically, these two teams uh, are, are pretty similar. Not necessarily hard X's and O's, but they both like to, to bully the other team. Uh, they, they play, they're really physical on defense. The goal is to, to shut the run game down, make that team one dimensional, and then, uh, you know, get after that quarterback. And they're so good at it that, you know, every team says they want to do that, but uh, pretty much every game, Mary Harden, Baylor, St. Thomas are able to, to, to do that. So they, they're able defensively to make teams one dimensional offensively. Uh, it means they don't have to take a lot of risks. They try to take care of the ball. They'll, they'll, Frequently, we'll, we'll pound it. We'll be happy to run. On the Mary Harden-Baylor side, in big games we've seen in the past, they, they are, they'll get conservative. And I think in, in big moments, sometimes we see St. Thomas pull out some, some trick plays or some wild things that, uh, that you don't normally see. So when these two teams, if they get locked in a 7-7 game or a 6-3 you know, game and, and they're, they're going back and forth, uh, putting you know short drives together, but not enough first, not long drives, not scoring drives. They they get a couple first downs and punt. If, if you see a lot of that going back and forth, don't um, don't be surprised to see St. Thomas uh, take some risks and Mary Harden Baylor, kind of not folding up the tents, not the right word, but play it closer to the vest, lean on that defense a little more. I think this could be we're expecting it to be the game that is the best game at the end of the day and maybe the best game in the entire tournament the, the one that comes down to a key decision or a key play in the fourth quarter but it may not be an exciting back and forth 38 35 kind of game i think it definitely won't be a 38 35 kind of game i think if you're looking for a reason uh, i was pretty pessimistic about st thomas a second ago if you're looking for a reason to be optimistic i think it's that the offense is more experienced. Uh, they're not led by a freshman quarterback the way that Mary Harden Baylor is. Um, you know, the, there are more weapons in the passing game for Mary Harden Baylor, I think, than there are for St. Thomas. I like TJ Josie better than Gabe Green, for example. Um, but I think that's, uh, I also think that your, your observation about how Mary Harden Baylor kind of tends to pack it in once they get a lead and they just try to ride it out to the end is, is, is definitely apropos. And it works against a lot of teams, and we've seen Whitewater do a very similar things through their run of success, wear teams down over the course of the game. But I just don't know if this St. Thomas defense is susceptible to being worn down. Now, we haven't seen these two teams match up. Maybe one is really a lot stronger than the other, and, and we'll be surprised by what we see on Saturday. But from what we've seen to date, you have to figure this is going to be a, a lot of very 
physical football, maybe a game where there's a bunch of punts back and forth for a good portion of the game. And if somebody uh, makes a play on special teams or, or somehow builds a, a surprising 14-3 lead with some you know big play or something like that, then I, th- I think you see what you talked about, Pat. The team try to try to um, lean on that other team a little bit and try to wear them down. But I just don't think either one of these defenses is uh, is really going to be susceptible to that. In the All-East Final, 10th-ranked Brockport at 7th-ranked Delaware Valley. This is one game where I consider the road team to be the favorite. I think, Keith, even if the Aggies can contain the Brockport offense, and that would be easier if Justin Morris and the running back is banged up, I'm not sure how Delaware Valley scores. Uh, the problem I have with this is not so much with the, the game. It's just that we don't know because of who Delaware Valley has had to play in the first two rounds through no fault of their own. Uh, Western New England and, and Husson, we just don't know how that translates to, to playing a team like Brockport. So the best thing we have to go on is the common opponent, Wesley. Well, Delaware Valley beat Wesley by five back in week one. Brockport beats Wesley by three touchdowns here in week 13. Big difference between Wesley in, in week one and week 13. So even that is not the greatest comparison of, of how uh, strong these two teams are. So, you know, We'll have a, a chance over the course of the week to, to think a little bit more about how these two teams match up. But I think right now what we've seen from Brockport is just kind of an all-out assault offensively. There's no um, – you pick uh, – we had to just if we just stop that guy, we're fine. You know, Brockport's able to run the ball. Uh, they're able to spread it around in the passing game. And then defensively, Brockport really looked great against against Wesley, defending the pass and getting after the quarterback. And, and that's uh, – that's what we'll see probably on Saturday. So Delaware Valley has its work cut out for it, but but being at home always helps at this point in the season. And uh, and and this this is a team that earned the 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 top seed in the East that earned this home game by playing Wesley uh, early in the season and beating Wesley. So um, it'll be fun to watch. Keith, I was feeling pretty good about my picks from this past week, and then you uh, kind of came and stomped all over everything. Well, let's let's be honest. It was uh, not our not our best week. Uh, whenever we talk about our picks from the previous Friday during the playoffs, we just do scores to to try to set what the expectation would be, so that when you're looking at you're at the game you're at on Saturday and you see the other seven scores scrolling by, you know, whoa. That, that wasn't what I expected. Uh, we had a lot of lot more quick misses than, than quick hits this week. Although we picked winners pretty easily, including some of us uh, nailing all eight teams that advanced, there weren't many actual good picks. China, come on out and get you whooping. In playoff picks, we tend to pick far more close games than actually occur. For one, teams that are 11-0 and and 10-1 and haven't been exposed all season, so it's sometimes difficult to envision how poorly particular teams match up or respond to pressure or... Uh, face one of the few deficits they faced all season. Also, at least for me, it's human nature. You want to err on the side of caution, especially with so many feelings getting hurt on Twitter. Ultimately, I'm not trying to prove how right I am to show what I know. I'm just trying to help set that expectation nationally, especially because most folks spend much of the season focusing on their own team and their own conference and not so much on the other conferences. So we try to help set that national national expectation so we know surprises when we see them in the heat of things on Saturday. And given how many of us 
picked close margins in Brockport Wesley or were split on the Cheyenne Warburg winner, much less the 42-point margin, shows that round two was surprising in some ways. So I'm pretty much going to lump everything uh, into quick misses here except in one way. We did all do well at projecting who would advance. There were very few surprises in round two. And to our credit, we all picked Frostburg State, the road team, to win at W&J. Um, again, some of a few of us went eight and zero. Some of you went seven and one, six and two. Uh, but since there was so much chalk, it's not all that impressive. The best quick hit of the weekend goes to Greg Thomas predicting a 38-14 score on the Delval Hudson score. That was 37-15. Here's hoping our quick hits for the quarterfinals give you a better idea of the actual how- outcomes. Although it would be no fun to watch if we could totally project everything that happens. Well, you're not wrong about. Uh people feeling butthurt man a lot of sensitive people out there uh mostly on twitter but it's not any different than say the guys in iowa feeling dissed because we didn't rank them in the top 25 in august and that's not warburg i'm talking about so i I think that's a a a non-ranking we were correct on for me i think keeping scoring margins low is part of what you talked about earlier in every 32 team bracket before this past saturday that was actually a pretty wise strategy in the postseason, you generally don't see teams putting up big, unnecessary winning margins. It's all about survive and advance. There's no need for style points. That wasn't flying. That was falling with style. But I don't think Delane Fitzgerald would have ever thought that Frostburg would win 35-7 to in the first round or that Rick Willis would have predicted a 49-7 to win for Saturday for Warburg. Yeah, I don't care much about running up the score. I don't know if I'm full-on. If you're trying to score, then we're trying to score. But as long as you're not taunting, you know, what can you do? Uh, I get more annoyed by guys doing the first down point after midfield catches or huge celebrations on tackles after gains. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Also, if you're down by a bunch, just give the ball to the ref after you score. Uh, My point, however, is uh, all the blowouts left some seniors and some really great players like John Smith, like Sumahoro, like Matt Gano from Wesley. Standout guys like the All-Americans left them playing their last snaps in games that were long decided. I observed on Twitter on Saturday how tough it must be to want to just wrap it on up, get on the bus or plane, and and go back home when you're down three scores in a playoff game. But there's a part of you inside that probably wants to represent your program and conference with a little pride. And you also want to spend some more time on the field with your friends and teammates. and, And heck, just take advantage of one of your last opportunities to play. Never forget that as eight teams move on, eight seasons come to an end, and a cherished experience comes to an end along with it. Not everyone gets to go out in a way that they're happy with, but from North Central to Linfield to Wesley, coaches, fans, players, and post-game conferences and on Twitter, uh, they seem proud of what they've gotten out of their rosters this season, so we tip our hats. Every thought of yours is a friend of mine. Keith, it was a bit of a quiet week on the coaching carousel. There will be a new coach at Anderson next year, and Muhlenberg promoted from within to replace Mike Donnelly and uh, replace interim coach Corey Goff. But, Keith, I need a thought of yours here. I'm pretty patriarchal about Division III, I'll admit, but even I don't think that you have to have been a Division III coach to crack the code and have some success as a new head coach at this level. But if you're a struggling program and you've hired non-Division III coaches the last two times out and that strategy is getting you exactly nowhere, isn't it time to rethink that strategy and hire a D3 person to coach a D3 team? Well, ultimately, I think the the goal is to hire the best person you can find, the most organized, um, the the guy who's going to lead and inspire. You know, you, you've seen what uh, Glenn Caruso, for example, uh, did for St. Thomas, a program that was uh, a school that 
plenty successful in other sports, but but needed a jolt for its football program and somebody at the top that can that can give you that. Um, it's not just being good at X's and O's. It's not just uh, being good at recruiting. It's not just being able to deal with all the things a head coach has to deal with in the administration and school and all the different challenges that a D3 programs have to deal with. Um, you have to be all that. And so it can be somebody from uh, an FCS school or one double, uh, I'm not one double A, obviously that's, that is FCS, uh, D2, D1. We've seen guys come from the high school ranks and be successful in D3, but we've also seen really successful high school coaches come to D3 and not have any success or get to seven and three, but never quite break through on the D3 level. So I do think if you do hire from outside, that it has to be a person who's um, open to embracing everything that division three is and that means you know not not just the not not getting scholarships but um when you go out recruiting you're not going to get the most talented player all the time you're looking for a well-rounded person who's going to excel at your school contribute on campus and be willing to learn you know we've talked on this podcast and uh, for folks who download the off-season ones where we talk more abstract philosophy we talk about um division three coaches sometimes just recruit numbers bring guys in to, to camp um, and let them be on the roster for a year or two or the JV program and let them sort themselves out. And you're, you're not recruiting guys who are five-star guys or what, however many stars. I don't even understand uh, <laughs> high school recruiting, to be quite honest with you. But you, you, don't, um, you don't bring in guys at that level. You just look for the potential. You look for someone who's well-rounded. You get a recommendation from a, a high school coach. Say, yeah, this guy's a good guy in the classroom, and he's, he puts an effort on the field. You recruit those kind of guys. And you have to have a, a person at the top who understands that and understands whatever the individual challenges of your school are, whether your school costs $50,000 or your school can only recruit 265-pound linemen because the, the academy that you work at has certain guidelines. Um, there's so many challenges on all these different D3 schools, uh, roster limits, um, you know, ha- have it budgets. Uh, being far away, like Finlandia, for example, you're far away from all your opponents. There's so many different things you have to deal with, and you do have to hire somebody, regardless of whether they have been in D3 before. I'm certain it helps, but it has to be someone who gets the philosophy, understands it, and is willing to embrace all these challenge challenges and take them on and not just try to come and be a head coach somewhere for a couple of years so I can hurry up and be a head coach somewhere else. There will be plenty more movement. Often there's a small flurry right as the season ends, then another one after Thanksgiving and before the end of a school's fall semester. So keep an eye out. Keith, we got a Gallardi Trophy semifinalists this past week. The best thing, the thing I like about um, the, the Gallardi Trophy is when folks who are up for it or, or folks that you know we're looking at considering uh, play in a second round game, quarterfinal game uh, against another very good either candidate or another very good team. And you get to judge them by their most prominent game of the season and not just the numbers they put up against the number seven and number six and number five team in their conference. The voting for that is still open. Fan voting, in fact, uh, continues through next Monday, the 5th of December at uh, 1 p.m. Eastern. So fans can cast uh, one ballot per device, and you can see that on the front page of d3football.com. It's at the end of the rotation right now, but we won't let it go away, so you guys can find it. Uh, Also, uh, Monday is the last, last chance 
nomination window for d3football.com all region. We've sent out uh, notes about this before and emails, and now uh, that list is in the hands of the conference offices who uh, will be following up with schools who had all conference players that weren't nominated. So if you're an SID listening, first of all, thank you. We appreciate that. I don't know. I know some SIDs listen. I don't know how many. Um, thank you. And don't forget to nominate if you have it already. And this was the D3Football.com Around the Nation podcast, number 186 for the week of November 27th, 2017. Thanks for listening. Tune in for the rest of our coverage throughout the week. If you like our podcast, please consider rating it in Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts because that will help other football fans find it. The executive producer of the Around the Nation podcast is Pat Coleman. Production assistance provided by Dave McHugh. Our theme music is by DJ Mentos, whom you can find at djmentos.com. We had lots of uh, guests and lots of audio clips, so thanks to the folks at the University of St. Thomas for putting their stuff out there. Thanks to uh, Rick Willis and the folks at uh, Warburg. Thanks to uh, Jason Bowen, who uh, put the Brockport postgame news conference online for us. Appreciate that. Uh, Gordon Mann uh, at the audio of Deshaun Darden and Duke Greco from Delaware Valley. Uh, Mary Harden Baylor putting its uh, its postgame audio online. Uh, W&J for putting the Frostburg postgame news conference out there as well. We really appreciate all of that uh, and all of your assistance in helping us put this edition of the show together. Also, thank you to the creator of Around the Nation on D3Football.com and my co-host, Keith McMillan. You can reach us to talk more about Division Three football on Twitter at the D3FB hashtag. I'm at D3Football. Keith is at D3Keith. We have a message board devoted to Division Three sports. You can join the conversation by registering to post at d3boards.com using a real email address. Also, you can follow d3football.com on Facebook as well. Uh, coming up this week, we have a handful of feature stories as we continue along the road to Salem. Uh, we'll have all region results coming out next week, uh, possibly before your next uh, before the next podcast but probably not probably about the same time uh, on the same day that the next podcast drops but we'll have lots of coverage throughout the week and then of course keep an eye out for uh, those quick hits for the quarterfinals not only do the six of us uh, put out our scores this week we have to say something about the game I don't remember how much we definitely have to write something because four scores is just not enough it might have been it might have been enough seven years ago but it's not enough now fair point Sorry, you stayed to the end of the podcast this week, and there's no cool bonus anything. Next week, though. I mean, I could go get that trombone.